This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. A little bit croaky because it's the Christmas season. And I'm joined by my good friend, David Adler. David, how are you doing? Tuning in live from the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. David Adler is, of course, the coordinator of Progressive International. We've got lots of international stories for you tonight. Um, A couple of domestic ones as well. Um, We are going to be talking more on the Tories' internal war over migration and how... Some of them are going really, really far right wing now. Um, European geopolitics plays out at the inauguration of the new Argentinian president. Very interesting moment where Zelensky corners Orban um, and the latest propaganda stunt from the Israeli military, which seems to have backfired. Not that it will necessarily matter. Stay tuned for all of that. Straight on to our first story. After six weeks of a sustained ground operation in Gaza, Israeli troops have now moved their focus deeper into the south of the region. But this is the destruction that they've left behind in Gaza City. Bombed buildings, few signs of life, and in the centre of a large crater, the Israeli flag. This footage was released by Israel's own Channel 12 News, undermining the country's denial that what's at stake here is territorial expansion. In the south, tanks have now entered the centre of Khan Yunus and Palestinians are being pushed into ever-shrinking areas. The red areas of this map show where ground operations are currently taking place. Almost all of the north remains a hot zone, as well as some areas around Khan Yunus in the south where the IDF are carrying out further incursions. But the yellow zones show areas that Palestinians have been told to leave. In the north, all of Gaza City is a no-go area, but huge amounts of the south are being emptied too, leaving Rafah on the Egyptian border, one of the last places Gazans have been told to go. 1.9 million displaced Palestinians are now crowding into areas that are less than a third of the area of the territory before the occupation. And Rafah is also at the only border crossing where limited aid is being allowed to enter Gaza. This footage shows crowds of Palestinians waiting outside a UN distribution centre for bags of flour to be handed out. For those who have the money, a 25 kilogram bag now costs around $100, up from $15 before the war. But for most, food is a luxury. We've saved the children, saying that those who survive the bombing are at, quote, imminent risk of dying of starvation and disease. So that's from Save the Children. Imminent starvation, disease, and over 18,000 Palestinians already killed. That's according to Gaza Health Ministry's latest figures. Haaretz magazine said it could be even higher. And that, of course, includes some 7,000 children. And yet the international community is doing little to alleviate the suffering. While countries around the world have urged Israel to stop its assault on Gaza, those in the West seem keen to let it continue. On Friday, the US vetoed a UN Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire. This was the moment that vote happened. In contra. Against. Abstentions. Abstentions. El resultado de la vot- the result of the vote is as follows. 13 votes in favor, one against, one abstention. So 13 votes in favor of a ceasefire, one veto, that was the United States, and one abstention, the United Kingdom. 
Um, our representative did use her speech at the UN to warn of an impending humanitarian crisis, but she obviously wasn't concerned enough to offer anything stronger than an abstention. Of course, the UK, one of five permanent members of the Security Council, so very significant in this crisis. The British government, as well as the Labour Party, have so far refused to act on Israel's ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Gaza, and we are complicit with UK firms directly profiting from the bombing. According to research from the campaign against the arms trade, British arms manufacturers have made a tidy sum from Israel's assault on the Strip. They report this. UK industry provides 15% of the components in the F-35 stealth combat aircraft that are currently being used in the bombardment of Gaza. The contract for the components is estimated by Campaign Against Arms Trade to be worth £336 million since 2016. But while the main party leaders might be silent, one backbench Labour MP is bringing forward a bill to stop the sale of British arms and arms components to countries who use them to violate international law, including Israel. Zara Sultana has presented her arms trade inquiry and suspension bill to Parliament this afternoon. Leading scholars and UN experts have warned of a genocide taking place in Gaza and we are almost certain that British-made arms are being used in these atrocities that we're seeing on our timelines and in the news. That is a moral catastrophe for our country. That complicity is absolutely shocking. So the bill that I am presenting today in Parliament would immediately suspend arms sales to any states that might use them in violations of international law. And that includes Israel, but it's not limited to Israel my message to Parliament and to my colleagues is clear that we can't be complicit in war crimes, especially with British-made weapons. So the bill you're putting forward or you're presenting, it doesn't name Israel specifically, does it? What was the decision making behind that? Why did you decide to keep this sort of in general terms? Well, the UK government has historically provided arms to countries like Saudi Arabia, who have used weapons on um, Yemen. So we've historically played a role um, in, in war crimes potentially across the world. So it's really important that legislation that is put forward can be applied to any country that we have arms sales with, and that will include Israel in this instance. As it stands at the moment, you know, the government doesn't say, oh, yeah, we just send arms to anyone. They claim that they do have sort of systems whereby they do check if the arms are going to be used for human rights abuses and then Somehow they say, oh, Saudi Arabia and Israel have both passed it. Um, so I suppose, could you, could you talk about how your proposal would differ from, from the current situation, whereby they can sort of tick a box saying they've done the check, but I mean, evidently, they're not particularly strict tests on which they are putting these, or which they are sort of testing these, these exports according to? Currently, under international law and actually UK law as well, the government is required to prevent the transfer of military equipment if there is a clear or overriding risk that it could be used to commit or facilitate a serious violation of international law. We have the UK strategic export license criteria, but these rules are ridden, riddled with loopholes and they're not properly applied. So we are seeing potentially war crimes being committed in Gaza, yet licenses haven't been, sus been suspended, which tells us that what is currently in place isn't working. So my bill would actually stop the government from exploiting these loopholes. And it would ensure that right now, British made weapons would not be for sale uh, to commit uh, acts of war crimes in Gaza or anywhere else. 
So as, as far as I understand it, if this private member's bill is is chosen to sort of be debated and, and voted on, I think it would be early next year, it would be quite unlikely for it to, to pass. Um, so I assume you're sort of making a statement more than sort of hoping this will be a legislative strategy to stop sending arms to Israel. And when it comes to sort of a realistic strategy, persuading the Labour leadership is going to be, you know, very high up on the agenda, potentially. I mean, they'll be the next government. They could have decision-making powers to properly limit the export of arms sales. Have you had any conversations with, um, you know, people on the front bench about this? Have they sort of indicated what their plans would be and um, were they to get into power? So today, I'm just presenting the bill. I'm just stating the title of the bill. It will come for its second reading on Friday, the 19th of January. So I'm hoping uh, to be able to speak to that and hopefully it will go to a vote. We know that the chances of this bill being passed are very low. Uh, there is no parliamentary majority in favour of uh, stopping arms sales uh, that could be uh, used in war crimes, unfortunately. So there's work to be done on that front. Um, in terms of the Labour Party, so far, the party's position on a ceasefire has been absolutely awful. Um, and there is uh, a lot of work that needs to be done to get the party to be uh, pushing for a ceasefire. We've had recent articles being published most recently in The Guardian, where the party is more critical of violence that's taking place in the West Bank. It's not going far enough. It's not being strong enough, especially when it comes to calling out violations of international law, especially on this bill. I'm hoping that the party will see that this is the right thing, not just politically, but also morally. We are complicit both diplomatically, um, you know, more recently with the vote in the UN um, uh, where we uh, abstained and the US vetoed. So not only are we providing diplomatic cover, we are also uh, selling arms to uh, uh, to Israel where people are dying. We are seeing dead babies on our timelines and we can do something to stop this. So I want the Labour Party to obviously go further. Um, I'm hoping that they will see that it's the right thing to do, but we are not there yet. Um, and just just to, to add in terms of um, this bill, um, while I hope that people will see that it's the right thing to do. There is a lot of pressure uh, that we can all use in terms of contacting our members of parliament uh, by talking uh, to uh, councillors and council leadership to push it through. So there's a lot of work to be done. I'm not um, saying it's going to happen overnight, uh, but the suffering continues and there is something that we can do. Um, and this is one of those areas that I think is really effective and important. And I suppose just to finally give us some insight into, you know, the conversations that are being had on the Labour benches, much of our audience, I mean, I'm pretty sure nearly all of our audience actually will be pretty outraged by the positions that Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership have taken throughout the Gaza war. Um, do you see significant levels of disquiet among the PLP? I mean, I know the sort of socialist campaign groups of the left wing MPs um, have sort of taken a different position and have opposed Keir Starmer. Does it seem to you that this, that you know, there might be pressure from a wider group of MPs that could cause Keir Starmer sort of an uncomfortable time, for example, in, in PLP meetings or the like? Calling out what's happening in Gaza isn't a left-right issue in the Labour Party. We've seen people from all wings of the Labour Party call for a permanent ceasefire. We've seen people from all wings of the Labour Party step down from front branch positions. 
uh, and demand a permanent ceasefire. And that's because colleagues across the party know that it's the right thing to do. They are being contacted by their constituents from different backgrounds who are calling on us to do the right thing. Um, You know, people are distressed seeing what they're seeing and MPs have agency, they have a role to play. And the fact that the Labour Party is still not calling for a permanent ceasefire despite all of this um, is absolutely shameful, not good enough. And the Labour Party has to be pushed in that direction um, because how can we go into a general election um, with foreign policy that struggles to show solidarity with people who are uh, facing war crimes, being displaced, um, being bombed um, in their sleep. It's just it's just not good enough. That was Zara Sultana speaking to me earlier today. David, I wanted your thoughts on this. I mean, as Zara said, it's very unlikely that uh, her private member's bill will pass. Um, at the same time, I suppose, even if the UK did stop sending arms to Israel, I mean, that would be a massive, I, I would love that to happen. But the United States is, is Israel's biggest sponsor. It's what happens in Washington that you know, will play the biggest role in disciplining Israel in this war. Um, as far as I understand it, you know, there are more discussions than usual in Congress when it comes to, you know, potentially conditioning aid to Israel. Could you sort of give us a, a sort of update on what what the situation is when it comes to Congress people and the, the movements in America to try and limit um, the unconditional support that Israel is given? Yeah, obviously, I'm, I'm broadcasting now from Washington, D.C., where I spent the past few days having a lot of these discussions with people on the Hill, members of Congress and the Senate, and their staffers, and making sense of how the situation diplomatically, politically is evolving from the D.C. perspective. And I think it's worth pausing on the footage that you showed from the United Nations Security Council to understand what a kind of iconic moment, what an earthquake that is in terms of how the U.S. sees itself and how the world sees the United States and its role, not just in this particular exercise of Zionist ethnic cleansing, but also uh, as a promoter uh, and the uh, the unipolar, unipolar uh, hegemon when it comes to the maintenance of the international order and the international law that uh, it has so much pride in having overseen the development and implementation of international law. I think that moment will be well understood in the history books, um, both domestically and abroad, as a moment in which the U.S. made its final lurch into the darkness um, of supporting and, and maintaining uh, the systematic violation of international law or the systematic maintenance of permanent exception for its allies. And so, you know, uh, I, I'd like to think that things are moving here in the U.S. However, that would be a kind of indulgent read, because I think that um, while there is a confident, defiant, and courageous caucus of progressives who really want to take this government to task for uh, its uh, systematic, flagrant, brazen violations of international law and, of course, sustaining Israeli crimes at the level of the of global governance, I think where the country is as a whole is extremely far away from taking any significant measures, not toward uh, uh, conditioning aid to Israel, but even towards condemning uh, what these acts are. I mean, uh, let's take the UK's position, because I think it's worthwhile to understand a bit about where the temperature is in the United Kingdom before coming to, as you rightly point out, Michael, the great um, the great big brother of, uh, of the United Kingdom across the pond, who is basically calling the shots in terms of where the NATO alliance goes in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The UK abstained at the level of the United, uh, United Nations Security Council on the vote toward a ceasefire because it said, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but it's a nearly a quote, we cannot possibly endorse a motion that does not condemn Hamas for the atrocities of October 7th. Now, this is where we're at now. 
Where we're at now is where a country can look in the face of the world and say, I'm not going to support, despite the calls from the UN General Secretary, calling this one of the greatest catastrophes of the 21st century, I'm not going to support a call for a substantive ceasefire to save lives in the now and the here in order to move towards a new diplomatic peaceful settlement because of a rhetorical gesture of condemnation that must be included in that text. This is not serious politics. This is pure apologism, uh, pure cowardice. And so when I think about what Zara is leading in the context of such a restrained, restrictive, repressive uh, Labour Party environment, but also the UK political context more generally, it makes me think how far away we really are from any kind of vocal and serious defense, not just of Palestinian lives and livelihoods, but of international law. I mean, when we make these comparisons, as we should and ought to do, to the South African case of, of apartheid, when the world took serious substantive action, not rhetorical action, not diplomatic action, material economic action, to unwinding, to dismantling complicity with this criminal regime in, in South Africa, it makes you think, man, we have so much work left to do. We are so far away where we're still having conversations about whether condemnations are included in resolutions that have to do with the transfer, as you pointed out in your opening segment, Michael, of millions of dollars on a monthly basis of armaments and the components of armaments across borders. So I think that when it, whether it's here in Washington, D.C., from which I'm broadcasting now, whether it's London, from which you're broadcasting now, their work remains to be done not just to build out a consensus on the importance of the defense and protection of basic and fundamental human rights, but of moving towards a more substantive position on what exactly are we doing? How much longer can this uh, state of exception that is granted to Israel to commit uh, untold crimes uh, according to the international laws that we hope to defend? How much longer can that permanent that state of exception endure? And when are we finally going to defend the same principles that we claim to uphold, that as Zara points out, are supposed to be written directly into British and United States American law? And these are the questions that are, of course, haunting me here in D.C., but haunting our allies on the Hill that cannot make significant headway in the context of such a hypertrophic Zionist lobby who tried to distract us with conversations of campus politics, of uh, rhetorical, uh, you know, tw the, the conversations on Twitter that are being inflamed at the annals of Congress. It's just a deeply unserious conversation that is designed to distract us from these core fundaments of what is the nature of the complicity between the United Kingdom, the United States, and the state of Israel, which run through these arteries of armaments and economic and diplomatic support uh, that need to be severed as quickly as possible. I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but when it comes to Zara Sultana, she's a representative of the Labour left. The Labour left have been you know, fairly good um, on calls for an immediate ceasefire. Obviously, the problem is that they don't have much influence within the Labour Party, and Keir Starmer has other ideas. But looking at the scene in the United States, um, as I say, I haven't been following it too closely, but I keep seeing on Twitter, Bernie Sanders seems to have a very disappointing line on this. He's been sort of opposed to calls for an immediate ceasefire. Do you have any sense of what's going on there? Can you sort of make sense of, of Bernie Sanders actually, you know, being closer to Joe Biden than, say, AOC on the question of, of Palestine? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a grim scene across the board. Uh, there's nothing good, nothing happy to report here in terms of how the... Uh, evolution of the Progressive Caucus uh, is able to respond to and grow out of a kind of expression of solidarity for the people of Palestine. 
this is not being moved. And if you see what actually is passing through, the legislation actually moving through uh, is talking about kind of untold billions of dollars, but also this high diplomatic support. This is why I put the emphasis on the UN Security Council veto, which looks like a one raised hand, but in fact is 8,000 dead children in the next two months, as have you already seen in the past two months. That's what's at stake in that raised hand. That's what's at stake in that iconic moment of defiance to the same principles it claims to uphold and promote. What's happening with Bernie Sanders, we could spend a whole episode discussing. I think that uh, there is a, what is a sense in which the senator has kind of talked himself into a corner, where in a weird way, this kind of statements that he's making now are not far from the center of gravity of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And I'm not defending the center of gravity of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. As we've talked about before in the show, they are confronting you know, uh, an, an APAC that is uh, calling that APAC hypertrophic and cruel would be an understatement, who is basically... Uh, writing blank checks to any reactionary uh, Democrat who would aim to unseat uh, or primary a progressive person who would even have a thought, not necessarily move in action or introduce legislation, who would have a thought of solidarity with the people of Palestine. So that's the kind of broader context in which this wonderful city has been built, where there's just streets lined with lobbyist money that's prepared to uh, unseat you and overthrow you should you speak out on these questions. With the case of Bernie Sanders, yeah, I think that there was this conflict initially over over a ceasefire. Uh, and then there was a fight about whether it was humanitarian pauses, how much to extend to defend those humanitarian pauses. And again, I, I think we're really in, in, in the in a, this uh, the conflicts over the rhetorical constructions to me strike me as uh, as distractions from the the substance um and they're using i think that these these differences i mean of course i could spend all day thinking about what what's so hard to say the word ceasefire what is so hard to defend the very basic idea that people's lives are worth defending for long enough that we can you know support them to uh, give access to electricity water to food uh to reclaim their houses to release the hostages these are the basic kind of tenets of a ceasefire. And it's so striking. It's so depressing that our, you know, most hallowed representatives in the United States Congress and Senate can't find it in their hearts, but can also can't find it in their constituency to speak out in favor. But I do think that even when you aggregate it, right, we shouldn't distract ourselves by looking too much at the progressive side of the equation, because, you know, we've got, you know, uh, hundreds of members of Congress and in, 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 uh, that are, you know, operating this mach legislative machine. And we're talking about resolutions that are, declaring the, that, you know, anti-Zionism anti is, is anti-Semitism, is fundamental anti-Semitism, right? The whole conflict that you guys had in the UK over several years in the context of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the, of the UK Labour Party were having overnight in a closed-door session uh, out, out of sight and out of mind of the US American public, and they're passing. They're passing on the, on the House of the US uh, House, of Car House of Representatives. So, you know, when we, when we talk about, is there energy around conditioning aid? No. There really isn't. The center of gravity is so reactionary, is so far towards a kind of blind support for the state of Israel, regardless of its violations sustained and intensified at the present moment, sustained violations of international law, that I think uh, we shouldn't be uh, too uh, either, <laughs> um, you know, encouraged by specific and concrete actions like a, a tweet of expressing solidarity with the people of Palestine, because we have to look at the broader arithmetic. Uh, of what's actually happening across the houses of Congress, which are, you know, basically hands tied behind back, all, all, all in towards support of the state of Israel. Straight on to our next story. Javier Millet has been inaugurated as Argentina's president. 
the anarcho-capitalist wants to abolish the central bank, replace the Argentine peso with the US dollar, and legalize the sale of human organs. So the inauguration is a big event in and of itself. But it was an interaction between two attendees which has received the most global attention. On the left here, you can see Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, and he appears to have cornered Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban. Um, this was originally sort of featured, I think, on Argentinian TV. No one knows what they're they're saying. We'd need to have a uh, a lip-reading specialist, but the audio wasn't on um, the original video. Now, you can also see a photo from a different angle. So you can see this, and um, this was shared by Zelensky's team. So they obviously proud of this. Um, and you can see that Orban didn't really have many escape routes. Now, the conversation has made headlines because of tension between the two leaders who have clashed over Ukraine's intentions to join the European Union. According to The Guardian, Hungary is defiant over its threat to block Ukraine-EU accession talks. Viktor Orban, who boasts about his strong ties to Vladimir Putin, has said he will block Ukraine's potential accession to the EU. Emmanuel Macron met with Orban last week to try and change his mind, but Orban hasn't budged, calling Ukraine one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And ahead of a meeting with his EU counterparts today, Hungary's foreign minister said this, a majority of European politicians want to make such important decisions which are entirely unprepared and lack strategic agreement on the future of Europe. We will not give in to any pressure, irrespective of where that is coming from, from whom, and what kind of blackmail it is or promise. So they're saying, whatever they threaten us with, whatever they offer us, um, we are not going to allow um, these accession talks with Ukraine to begin. David, um, the last time we got you on the show, it was to talk about the election of Javier Millet. Um, I want to ask you about the attendees um, today, because I know you're also an expert on European politics. Um, this issue of sort of Hungary blocking the accession of Ukraine to join the European Union, is that really what's stopping Ukraine joining the EU? This is a total farce, Michael. I mean, this is a farce and a revealing farce about where European politics is at. The, Ukraine will not enter the European Union. I mean, these accession talks are not serious, and and neither is um, someone like Emmanuel Macron when he goes and says, you know, I'm doing everything I can to ensure Ukraine's accession to the European Union. We can have a long conversation about the the underlying politics and the historical trajectory of EU accession. Right? We've not had, uh, you know, a, a functional pathway, a functional pipeline to accession for a long time. Uh, and there would be so many problems in terms of how to integrate the Ukraine into the European Union. Uh, these accession conversations are extremely hard. They're extremely durable. They have lots of conditionality, a lot of conditions. And, you know, I think that there is a certain game that's being played here that's beneficial to both sides of the populist, anti-populist coin. And it's one we've seen being played out across Europe for the past 10 years. And it's one we're seeing play out now again in the context of uh, Polish politics, in the context of Maloney's place in the European Union. I could go on which is to say that there are people like Emmanuel Macron who want to paint themselves as great European, pro-European politicians who are there to basically not just defend, but extend these principles of the EU's liberal, generous, uh, open spirit. And there are these populist politicians that haunt the continent and threaten, endanger, present an existential threat, in fact, to the European project because of their illiberal policies, because of their illiberal perspective on global affairs. 
But this is not true. It's not true in a, in a couple of ways. One, of course, people like Macron depend on the their opponents, whether it's Le Pen or 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 Orban, to kind of whip up anxieties about the disintegration of the European Union and win support for other otherwise very unpopular sets of policies, orthodox neoliberal policies in the case of Macron, to try to shore up their support by creating broad fronts to confront uh, these so-called populist politicians. And equally, someone like Orban is going to paint these uh, you know, dangerous liberals operating in the dark corridors of Brussels as being somehow his own existential opponents and the existential opponents of the project of you know, God, family, and uh, and, and fatherland that he seeks to represent in Hungary. In truth, there's a lot of agreement about what the European project is, where it's going, what is, remains to be done in terms of uh, where we're moving with European integration. You know, Europe is kind of at a, a standstill. We'll talk a bit about what the underlying political econo- economy of that standstill is, uh, a stagnation that will be very legible to a lot of your listeners and viewers in the UK. But the fact is that like this proposed conflict between Orban and, and Macron is, is totally fake in nature. And I think that it's just very convenient for Macron to be able to point to a bogeyman like uh, Orban and say, see, my hands are tied. I can't possibly support Ukraine's accession to the European Union because we have these internal opponents. And for Orban to say, look at me, I'm bravely and courageously standing up to the big powers, the Germanys, the Frances, uh, now the Polands, to try to, you know, take a stand. And, and as the foreign ministry was just sitting there, you know, not going to be blackmailed or pressured no matter who or no matter how. You know, so everyone's kind of getting off on this particular presentation of a conflict between the so-called populist, anti-populist, pro-anti-EU, when I think they're two sides of the same political coin, uh, that when push comes to shove, actually kind of share an idea of where European politics is and should be going. I definitely agree with you on sort of this being for show. Obviously, it helps Macron if he can say, I want Ukraine to join, but there's this awkward country stopping it. It helps Orban if he can say, I'm the tough guy stopping Ukraine joining. And I think it probably helps Zelensky to his domestic audience to say, look, I'm I'm really trying to put the case to um, Orban that he should drop his block. I can see how that idea of political theatre works. In terms of the political economy of the European Union, I do have some questions for you, but let's First, go to the big news of the day um, when it comes um, to the European Union. Um, and this is better news for EU bureaucrats because Viktor Orban's conservative allies in Poland have today lost a vote of confidence in Parliament, ending eight years of rule by the Law and Justice Party. In their place, former European Council President Donald Tusk has now become Poland's Prime Minister. He has returned to the job he held between 2007 and 2014. This is how France 24 reported the news. This really is a sea change for governance in Poland. Law and justice has been in control of Poland for the past eight years, during which time they've been accused of eroding the rule of law, of putting far-right cronies in high-ranking positions in the judiciary, in the uh, public broadcaster, in the civil service. And for that, the EU has withheld EU funds to Poland for that erosion of rule of law, particularly the interference with the independent judiciary, as Poland went down the one-party authoritarian road, uh, the same that Viktor Orban in Hungary has been going down. Donald Tusk has promised to undo all of that, to undo that interference so that he can unfreeze Poland's EU funding. But he has some pretty big hurdles in front of them. For one thing, his coalition is a center-right coalition. However, there are about 15% of that coalition that is actually from the center left and the Greens. And so that could cause trouble given those two different ideologies within the coalition. The other problem is 
that law and justice has kind of put their, their cronies in all those positions, he needs to essentially fire those people, uh, what they're calling the depissification of the Polish state. But the problem is that itself would be political interference. So the commission behind me is going to be in a tough spot because they want to give that money back to Poland. They want to show the Polish voters that they made the right decision in October and that they can see immediate benefits because of that decision. But it's going to be a hard case to make that Tusk's political interference, taking those people out of the positions is okay, while the political interference before wasn't okay. The problem is there's no way to undo that previous political interference in the judiciary, in the broadcaster, without some new political uh, interference. So he has a, a big job in front of him. I'm very juvenile, so the depacification phrase made me giggle a little bit. Um, the argument being there that the PIS, so the Law and Justice Party, um, they were sort of being critiqued and sanctioned by the EU for interfering in sort of the judiciary and in the media and by a political appointments and the host there sort of pointing out that if Tusk wants to roll that back, he's going to have to make his own political appointment. So there'll be it will be the kind of interference that the EU bureaucrats are in favour of, but it will be difficult to say why is Tusk's interference okay when the previous Law and Justice Party's interference wasn't. Um, how significant a win um, do you think Tusk becoming Prime Minister of Poland is for the, the European Union? Obviously, this is a guy who was the president of the European Council. You couldn't really get more of a, you know, an EU guy than Donald Tusk. Yeah, and the more revealing part of that speech, Michael, of course, I also chuckled, got a good chuckle out of depacification, but the more revealing part of that speech was when he said that the European Union was going to reward the Polish people for making the right choice. You know, and this is the sort of structure that Tusk really believes in, this kind of patronizing uh, role that Brussels has come to play over the broader political economy of the continent. And we really shouldn't forget who Donald Tusk is. Of course, Donald Tusk is the guy who, you know, came around to your neighborhood to um, cast aspersions and blame you all for Brexit and say, you made the wrong decision. Now we're going to punish you for making the wrong decision. He's also the guy who oversaw the negotiations around a potential exit by Greece from the European Union and the deliberations that were taking place then in the Eurozone about a bailout package and the other thing in his power to uh, prevent uh, the Greeks from uh, resisting successfully the mandate uh, imposed by, by the Troika, uh, of which he was a representative um, uh, at that time on the European Council. So this is a guy who has a very particular view of the European Union as a important supranational structure that does determine and does decide critical distributional outcomes for people at the level of, of individual member states that doesn't want to let democracy interfere with the broader European project. But of course, you know, 2015 is not 2023. And if we think about what kicked off after Brexit, it was a fear of a domino effect that all these countries were going to enter into its Alexit, Frexit, Spexit, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you had someone like Marine Le Pen who would be coming out directly after with a poster of, you know, two hands breaking from chains saying you know, France can finally follow the example of the, of, uh, the United Kingdom in, in its departure from the European Union. Now, these things did not happen. And in the course of that, um, the domino not falling, you know, in what we saw was a kind of re rearrangement of the kind of tectonic um, composition of European politics so that it would be pressure not exerted towards the outside, not a kind of centra fugal force that was happening being exerted by the so-called populist but a centripetal one it then became a game of how are we going to contest and write the rules at the very center of the european union uh in brussels uh in frankfurt uh and beyond 
And so the result of that was, uh, for example, that Orban, in short order in the past eight years, this is why I find it so hilarious and farcical, the idea that Macron is fighting Orban. You know, we found Orban's position on migration, which, you know, some years ago was defined as uh, xenophobic and uh, cruel, not to mention a criminal violation of international laws around asylum, uh, to become, in his own words, the consensus position inside Europe. We saw uh, someone like uh, Georgia Maloney, who, again, 10 years ago, we would have decried as a neo-fascist, become a darling of the Atlantic Alliance, um, a darling of the European Council, and you know, a chief advocate of programs like Frontex that seek to uh, punish asylum seekers on their arrival to Italy. Here she is signing a new agreement with Albania to set up detention centers inside Albania. Uh, on the other side of the Mediterranean, signing agreements with Libya to uh, make sure that there's the externalization of Europe's border control. So there's a, a shift away from that proposed conflict between the pro and the anti-Europeans towards what is the nature of the European project. In the course of that, instead of seeing that conflict become more open, become more polarized, like flip out to the extremes on both left and right, we've seen it become a kind of concentrated game of accommodation where people like Donald Tusk uh, who, as the presenter rightly mentioned, is not like coming from the center left to fight the far right, but is going to be governing from the center right to think about how to accommodate and negotiate with aspects of the supposedly, you know, um, out of bounds uh, criminal project of the of the peace, um, and finding a way to to build those kinds of coalitions. And so this is where we're at with this kind of, uh, you know, the rightward drift of the European project uh, and the co cohering notion of a civilizational. Uh, agenda that Europe really shares. Uh, and so that's why I think we shouldn't get distracted by looking at these specific moments. Now, of course, the arrival of Donald Tusk um, in a context where peace had done significant damage to basic and fundamental civic rights in Poland is important. I think we should expect to see significant reforms in the coming years around uh, liberal rights, whether it's around speech uh, or um, or education. Uh, and certainly we, we might hope that there is some kind of rebalancing of the, uh, of the judicial uh, composition and structure in Poland. But when it comes to the stakes for Europe in general, it's hard to see what's actually moving. I mean, it's hard to see, you know, in this broader game of accommodation that's being played from the center right to the far right in places like Germany, in places like Poland, in places like France, in Italy, and Greece. You know, I could, I could go on. But that's the game that Europe is playing now, is how to find a kind of new paradigm to represent the anxieties of far-right voters with the technocratic governance that comes in from the center-right parties that have long dominated the continent for decades since, you know, since the Treaty of Rome uh, back in the 50s. And what seems a bit strange to me or a bit surprising, so I've been looking at sort of the charts of sort of growth in the European countries, and I can see how for sort of southern Europe, the EU doesn't seem to have been working very well for a while. They've been stagnating or shrinking their economies for a decade now or at least. But for the Eastern European countries, for those accession countries who sort of joined just after 2004, it's been going really well. Like Poland has had growth sort of averaging around 5% a year for ages. Like it used to be the case that people would move en masse from Poland to a country like Britain. Now people are moving back to Poland, not just because of Brexit, but also because Poland's economy is thriving now. So this idea of sort of you join the bloc, um, you, you have low wages, but many of your people go and work in, in other European countries. Then they come back with more skills and capital. And then, you know, Europe will, will, will somewhat balance because there'll be a convergence of wages. doesn't seem to be working too badly for, for Poland and, and Hungary. So I'm, I'm not sure why it is that sort of the, the challenge to Europe came from those countries that are working well, as opposed to the countries that the EU seems to really be, you know, not working very well for. Well, 
not Britain, because obviously we left, but Spain, Italy, etc. Yeah, but I, I think that talking about the political economy and underlying political economy in the continent, this this goes hand in hand with the dynamics, the more centripetal, the shift from a centrifugal dynamic to a more centripetal one. As we see these economic outcomes kind of level out across the continent, right, increasing growth in Poland, less pressure around internal migration, I think it's no coincidence that we're seeing a, a lot of a much stronger push for a coherent kind of political project across the continent against the world. Right, so much more concern around uh, migration from Africa, much more concern around migration from the Middle East, much more concern around consolidating these diplomatic positions, granting Europe this strategic autonomy, right, reinforcing NATO, being part of a civilizational project is now much more important than fretting over the arrival of Poles to Paris or the arrival of Greeks to London. I know that you know the UK has left the European Union, but I think that it goes hand in hand with this kind of domestic political economic uh, pattern of convergence across these EU countries, that means that there's a lot more pressure around, you know, what is the place, in the words of um, our, our, our uh, friend from, uh, our Belgian MEP friend, whose name is escaping me now, who likes to speak about, you know, if we're going to be entering a world of empires, the Chinese are going to have their empire and the US Americans are going to have the empire, Europe must too be an empire. And I think it's on that point where uh, we see really there is this kind of convergence uh, between the Macron and the Orban and the Tusk and the peace. This idea that Europe must have a civilizational project, that it must be in opposition to the so-called jungle that lies outside of Europe. You know, these are consensus positions. You have kind of a breakaway in the form of Spain's progressive governments, maybe Portugal's social democratic one, that are trying to carve out a new space there. But at the level of the European Council Commission, you know, where these things are really taking place, you know, Ursula von der Leyen is the figure that really represents the beating heart of the European supranational project. And that, I think, is a good weather vane. It's a good way to look at kind of how that product is, is evolving. And it's no longer being internally threatened. No one talks about anti-EU really being a significant uh, or existential threat to the prospects for this project, but much more about what is Europe's place in the world. And on that account, I'm very confident that Donald Tusk will have no problem sitting down with Victor Orban and having a conversation about how to accommodate some of those anxieties, some of those concerns with Tusk's more kind of center-right, but kind of liberal perspective on, on, on economic management. Uh, but what remains to, you know, remains unaccommodable un, un, uh, are serious left-wing projects and serious left-wing expressions of solidarity with global South populations that need either greater diplomatic support, greater financial support, or or, um, or greater uh, support for their you know asylum-seeking prospects when it comes to uh, the European moving from uh, you know Africa or moving from the Middle East uh, over to Europe. I think that's what really concerns me most is seeing the uh, the ability for these people who spoke out for so many years on the emergence and the uh, consolidation of a far right become basically chummy and, and, and palling out with with the Maloney's of the world. We've got more for you tonight coming up on Israel-Palestine and on the Tories and migration as well. Um, so stay tuned for all of that. First, though, if you aren't already aware, we are currently running a fundraiser for Navarra Media moving into 2024. And as part of that, um, we recently released a behind-the-scenes video for our Sunday show, um, Downstream. Here's a clip from that. The funny thing with Downstream is we have the guests come in, you know, Francis Fukuyama or whoever. And they're shocked. They are genuinely shocked at what Navarra's produced because they go, wait, you're socialists? You're communists? You're on the left? Nobody gave you any money to start any of this? You've got no seed capital, no venture capital? No, not a penny. Nobody gave us a single penny of investment which had to be paid back. And they are stunned. You know, they, they, they do their press junkets with publishers or whoever. 
they come to us and they say, this is Channel 4. And then they say, well, actually on YouTube, they, this might get more views than Channel 4. They're shocked. And I think that is a really nice thing. It reflects incredibly well on my colleagues because they're brilliant, talented people. It reflects really well on our supporters because they're part of a project which is stupefying. I think we can produce, I think we already are producing, far better work than they produce on legacy media with a fraction of the resources, a fraction. The link to that full video is in the description box below. And of course, the link to support us is navaramedia.com slash support. Thank you to all of you um, who already donate each month. Um, if you don't already, then please do um, consider signing up to help support independent media. Let's go straight on to our next story. The Tories are in full civil war mode over migration, and it's getting pretty nasty. Robert Jenrick was, until last week, immigration minister. That's when he resigned, and he said this to the BBC's Laura Koonsberg on Sunday. I've always cared about this. You've seen that, if, for example, in my record as housing secretary, where I was deeply concerned about the housing crisis that is being uh, exacerbated by very high levels of net migration. You saw that when I was community secretary, where I worked very hard on community cohesion and integration. And I'm very worried that a million new people coming into our country every year is damaging our ability to integrate those people successfully and What's to be a united country. Because country? it's easy to say that to grab headlines and some people find that very provocative. What's your evidence that integration isn't working? Well, I think there are communities in our country where people are leading parallel lives. And just it, it, is, it is inevitable, you know, it, it's an obvious observation that a million people coming into our country every year is immensely challenging to successfully integrate. And I'm afraid you see that, I mean, I've seen that recently, for example, with the marches through London, where I saw some people who simply did not share British values I thought that was wrong. It was deeply disturbing. And I think we've got to take action to address that. Of migration? I think it's connected to mass uncontrolled migration. And I think we have to change that. You should always be very suspicious when someone says, what's your evidence for that? And they say, well, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? Well, uh, that's you're trying to get out of the question, right? He doesn't have evidence that integration isn't working in the UK. I personally think multiculturalism works pretty goddamn well in this country. I mean, I live in probably the most multicultural city in the country and it's working pretty well in London. I also found his explanation there when it came to the Palestine demos. I mean, that's what he was referring to, right? He was referring to those demonstrations for a ceasefire against ethnic cleansing, against the killing of 7,000 children. And he thinks the fact that half a million people came out onto the street to say, we don't think it's right to kill 7,000 children. That is supposed to be proof that people coming to this country don't have British values. If, 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 if your proof that people don't have British values is that they wanted to stop a genocide, you've you, you got to ask, what are British values, right? Now, I'm, I'm not someone who thinks that British values are necessarily evil and, and racist, etc. I think there are a lot of great things about Britain. But if you were defining British values as being fine with the killing of 7,000 children then I'm not sure I want to subscribe to the British values that Robert Jenrick is talking about. And that is just, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I try not to use the phrase dog whistle too much because it's, it's potentially one of those phrases which is overused. But in that situation, that most certainly was, right? I was at that demo, half a million. I mean, I think the organizer said 800,000, the police said 300,000, probably somewhere in the middle, right? 
loads and loads of people. The most peaceful march I have ever been on. Chatted to so many different families on that march, partly because lots of them watch Navarro Media, right? So lots of people coming up and saying, hey, um, they like our coverage on Palestine, et cetera, et cetera. And people were so friendly, so peaceful. All the signs I saw were fine. I didn't see any of these, you know, I think among half a million people, there were sort of 10 signs that went completely viral on Twitter because they were problematic. And that meant that that's what the whole protest got tarred as. And now the fact that you've got half a million people who just don't like to see war, don't like to see kids bombed, that's against British value. And I mean, you know, Robert Jenrick is essentially saying there's too many Muslims in Britain, right? That's the message he was putting forward. We can see the problem. The problem is those pro-Palestine demos. What did we see on those pro-Palestine demos? Yes, there was a big cross-section of society, but it was disproportionately Muslim um, because Muslims feel a certain connection to Palestine. Palestine, Israel-Palestine, it's not just a religious conflict, but Many Palestinians are, are the majority of Palestinians are Muslim. And so obviously lots of Muslims in this country feel very strongly when their Muslim brothers and sisters are being bombed by a, a strong ally of, of, of Britain. So it seems as if that is evidence for the problem with migration to this country. I found it incredibly offensive, incredibly offensive. And I would actually like, you know, to see Robert Jenrick go to that march and speak to the families that I spoke to and sort of tell them that they don't have British values. He, he seems to be basing this, as I say, on the sort of 10 signs that went viral on Twitter. I find it incredibly disingenuous. Robert Jenrick, of course, resigned because he didn't think the Rwanda bill um, was tough enough. So that's specifically relating to irregular migration. Um, but in that answer we just showed you, he was referring to regular migration. So people who came here with permission. And that is currently in the news um, because it is at a historically incredibly high level. So in the year to June 2023, net migration stood at 672,000. That is way higher than the historical norm for the UK, which had hovered at around 250,000 per year from the year 2000 onwards. And it's not just the Tory right who see this as a weakness for Rishi Sunak. Keir Starmer is giving a speech on migration tomorrow, and he has briefed journalists. He will say this. Yes, Brexit was a vote for lower immigration. Of course it was. But it was also a vote for the idea that we need to renew, that hard work should be rewarded with a wage people can live on. And for the Tories, that's the rub. Seven years they've had to make Brexit work. But every time they run up against a choice of whether to raise skills and improve working conditions or issue visas, they choose higher migration. It's who they are. So Keir Starmer, very much, I think, running to the right of the Conservative Party when it comes to migration, although he'd argue, you know, that's a left wing argument because he's saying we should be training people here um, instead of just allowing more people to come. Of course, um, one big reason we're seeing record high migration is, yes, because we have loosened restrictions to people from outside the European Union, but also our economic model, our universities are completely subsidized by international students. Um, and, you know, there are huge sections of the labor force, in particular health and social care, which are totally reliant, again, um, on people coming to move here and caring for our parents, you know, caring for um, the elderly of this nation. So I personally think um, we should also be very grateful that lots of people want to come here. Not everyone feels the same. I think what Keir Starmer is saying seems somewhat disingenuous. I'm not sure he even believes it. But it is surprising, I think, that Brexit happened and then net migration doubled to, to a record high. I think you can sort of say that, you know, lots of people didn't see that coming. And it's not, I, I mean, I don't think it's racist to point out that that's historically a very high level of net migration. I personally don't see it as a problem. I think we need to build a shed load more houses if we're going to have migration at that level for a sustained period of time. But it also brings benefits to the economy. It's kind of a vote of confidence in Britain in a way. I mean, what do you make of it? 
I think what's notable about the dynamic that you're describing in, in, in Britain, both on the case of these kind of radicalization of the Tory rights towards not just Rwanda, but beyond, as the case of this minister shows off, but Keir Starmer's utterly embarrassing and like criminal scurry to the right uh, of the Conservative Party against which he's running. But that dynamic is not British in nature. I know that there are specific dynamics that have to do with Brexit, the reevaluation of Britain's, Britain's role in the world vis-a-vis -vis its closest neighbors uh, and its you know old colonial um, uh, territories. But it's a dynamic that's also happening, you know, right here in in Washington. You know, at the same time as we saw one iconic moment at the level of the UN Security Council with the US vetoing the vote for a ceasefire requested by the UN General Secretary uh, Antonio Gutierrez, we're also seeing a huge row about migration that also has, uh, you know, historic consequences for the trajectory of the U.S. relationship to international law, specifically to asylum law. So what's happening now is parts of the Republican Party upset about uh, a new $60 billion, six zero, $60 billion request for support for arms shipments to Ukraine, uh, which of course is outside the context of the current show, but it's worth thinking about what it means that the U.S. has invested a hundred billion, will have invested a hundred billion dollars in support for Ukraine more, uh, when there's so many other uh, urgent questions that uh, don't garner nearly a uh, a fraction of that kind of cross-partisan support. But they've attached these questions around border security to the funding bill for Ukraine, and that those security uh, border security. I shouldn't even indulge them with that phrase. Uh, kind of border repellents. Uh, and uh, criminal at that would involve basically taking on this particular provision in U.S. American law that allows for the expansion of um, migration permissions and visas and asylum for particularly vulnerable populations. So in that case, it would be, for example, Ukrainians who are fleeing war and violence following Putin's invasion in Ukraine. It could also be for kind of darling populations of uh, U.S. adversaries, let's say people leaving sanctioned countries, Cuba and Venezuela, that there are particular visa provisions. Um, now, a huge section of uh, the U.S. political class wants to revise that special consideration and basically strike at the heart of U.S., the U.S. asylum um, uh, complex, which has enabled over the course of its long history so many people to come uh, who are fleeing persecution or violence or war in their own local contexts, uh, but to use these special permissions to enter the United States. What we're seeing now is this grand bargain around you know, U.S. migration. Of course, it's a cross-partisan bargain. You know, we came to know Obama as the deporter in chief. We've seen under in the case of the Biden administration, even despite its supposed opposition to the racist, xenophobic policies of the Trump administration, uh, do things like you know just put Haitians back on planes and send them back uh, to Haiti, while also you know arranging quiet security deals so that they can deploy thousands of Kenyan police to manage the security uh, situation in Haiti kind of on the U.S. behalf, because of course we can't handle another diplomatic row of being involved in yet another security intervention. And so what we're seeing, I think, is a very similar dynamic happening. We talked about the European context in which uh, the externalization of border management is a very, very consistent phenomenon that garners cross-partisan support. We talked about that in the case of Poland, in the case of Hungary, in the case of France, in the case of Italy. We're seeing it play out in the United Kingdom in the case of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, who are uh, arriving at a common policy. If the Labour Party doesn't scrap the Rwanda policy, don't color me surprised. I mean, seeing the idea of externalization of uh, border control to be a very appealing one, finding a way to handle the security integration problems posed by migration. 
And of course, it's something that's happening across the United States. You could say we're pioneers in this aspects. We're seeing the construction of the, of the so-called Trump wall continue apace uh, as we're trying to repel not just migrants from Mexico, but reaching down through that whole kind of Western hemisphere, that whole corridor that reaches down through Guatemala and Honduras all the way down to, uh, to Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, and we're seeing the U.S. kind of reach for its favorite weapon, sanctions, to, uh, to find ways, new ways of sanctioning people who find a way around this kind of asylum process. So I think we're in this very terrifying moment in which the very fundaments of asylum law, as it was written to international law uh, in the mid-century, are being rewritten, uh, rewritten quietly uh, by stealth, uh, as well as by kind of this um, backdoor consensus that's being hashed out between our leaders uh, behind our backs. So this is what I think is concerning me, reaching across that whole Atlantic or Global North alliance uh, that's becoming increasingly vocal, increasingly um, willing to uh, to speak what would otherwise be considered a taboo about their kind of revulsion when it comes to migrants from from poor countries. Uh, you know, and we're, we should be prepared for that dynamic to escalate as, as of course, a climate crisis unfolds, leading to even more uh, of this kind of urgent pursuit of safety and security uh, as environmental breakdown leads to a lot of dispossession around the world. Personally, on the Rwanda policy, I would be surprised if Labour kept it. Because for me, the Rwanda policy is not going to work. It seems to me just a way that the Tories want to keep migration at the top of the news agenda, which Labour wouldn't really want to do. So when it comes to Europe, as far as I understand it, the externalisation policy, so how to sort of make your border not within Europe, but outside of it, so sort of out of sight, out of mind, as you pay Libya or Turkey loads of money to abuse people's human rights so they never have to appear in Europe in the first place. And so the problem is is sort of uh, avoided. Um, and that's there's basically cross-party support for that among the EU because it works. It does stop a significant number of people coming to Europe. With the Rwanda policy, I don't think it would work. It doesn't really achieve anything other than keep it in the headlines. So I wouldn't be surprised if Labour do scrap that or stick to their current promise to scrap that. Although I think, you know, they would... I mean, it's, it's a bit relevant now to us because we're this island over there. But I think if we were still a member of the EU, for example, they would be very much in favor of keeping those payments going to Libya and keeping those payments going to, to Turkey to externalize Europe's borders because that does work to stop asylum seekers coming here. I don't think that's a good thing, but it does. Let's go to our final story. According to the IDF, over 100 Israeli soldiers have been killed since Israel invaded Gaza in late October, with nearly 600 wounded. To put that in context, in 2014, when Israel last invaded Gaza, just 67 soldiers were killed in around the same time frame. And yet, it isn't clear that Israel is making much progress in its goal of eliminating Hamas. According to the IDF, 5,000 Hamas members have been killed, but the basis of that figure is far from clear, especially when many Israeli officials have claimed that everyone in Gaza is Hamas. So we don't know how they are making this calculation. Former Israeli negotiator Daniel Levy and journalist Tony Karen have written this article for US magazine The Nation. They argue that Israel is losing the war and failing to achieve its political goals. That's despite killing over 18,000 Palestinians. So, with both civilian and military morale lagging and international condemnation of Israel's actions on the rise, what the IDF needed was an impressive win, which perhaps explains footage that emerged last week of IDF troops taking a large number of Palestinian men prisoner in northern Gaza. The men were stripped almost naked and forced to sit in the street. It's not known who shot the video, but they were shown on an Israeli news channel last Thursday. In another video, the men appeared to be handing over weapons to their captors. 
In this footage, the men are being held at gunpoint with their arms in the air. The location of the film has been confirmed as outside the UN-run Khalifa School in Beit Laya, north of Gaza City. In their hands, the men hold up their ID cards. Then one man emerges from the crowd as an Israeli soldier orders him forward. He appears to be carrying an automatic weapon in his left hand and what looks like a cartridge in his right, and he places them both in a pile of other weapons. Now, Israel described the video as showing Hamas fighters who had surrendered to its military. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said of the scene, quote, they are laying down their weapons and handing themselves over to our heroic fighters. But Palestinians were skeptical, noting that amongst those captured was a recognizable journalist. And the situation got even more confusing when a second video emerged. In this video, the same man as in the previous one emerges from the crowd of captive men, except this time the automatic weapon is in his right hand. Remember, it was in his left hand in the last clip. And what appears to be a cartridge is in his left hand rather than his right hand as it was in the first video. Again, he adds both to a pile of weapons. The two videos led to claims that the surrender of arms by the captive men was staged, with the IDF filming separate shots of the same event. BBC Verify has now investigated those claims. It says it's established the two different scenes come from a continuous sequence with the same man going back and forth to hand over free weapons in total. Of course, that doesn't make the video any less dodgy. The men have been stripped to their underwear, but somehow still have at least three large guns on them. That doesn't make any sense. And the same man is being ordered back and forth at gunpoint, hardly the sign of a convincing surrender. Others have also reported that the man bringing out the gun is the owner of an aluminium workshop in Gaza City, who with hundreds of others had fled to the school to seek shelter. Another Palestinian man who spoke to the BBC identified his cousins amongst the captured. The BBC reported this. The man who wishes to remain anonymous over safety concerns told BBC Arabic's Efar Shalabi that IDF soldiers entered the area and used megaphones to order the men from their homes and UN relief agency schools. The IDF ordered women in the area to go to a nearby hospital and later threatened to shoot them if the men did not come out of their homes, he said. The man said seven of his cousins have since been released and have returned home, but added he does not know about the fate of the free who remain in Israeli detention. Human rights group Euro Mediterranean Monitor have now called for an international investigation into Israel's treatment of Palestinian captives. They report this. The Euromed Monitor team has gathered statements and testimonies about Israeli special forces raiding refugee centers in Gaza City and its northern areas, which housed thousands of displaced Palestinians. These raids have involved the execution of young men who were shot with live ammunition at point-blank range. Displaced people at the Cairo School, which houses hundreds of displaced people west of Gaza City, told Euromed Monitor's team that several civilian cars carrying Israeli special forces stormed the schoolyard on Friday the 8th of December, killing and wounding a number of unarmed young men. According to the testimonies, the Israeli special forces ordered all of the men in the school to quickly gather and, lined up and line up opposite them. Four of the men were executed and the others were arrested after a brief interrogation. So that report from Euromed Monitor, I mean, that's war crime after war crime, isn't it? Um, Israel's rounding up and stripping of dozens of Palestinian men is at the very least systematic humiliation. But for Israel... It's all justified. This was Israeli government advisor Mark Regev on Sky News. The International Red Cross saying that 
all those uh, detained should be treated with humanity and dignity. Um, doesn't look particularly humane or dignified, does it? So I understand the pictures look terrible, but you have to understand why we ask these uh, men to, to, to take off their shirts. Uh, Hamas is one of the people who invented the idea of the suicide bomber with the, uh, with the uh, dynamite tied to his body. And, uh, of course, when taking prisoners, we are asking people to take off their shirts because we don't want a situation where a, you know, a Hamas terrorist raises his hands supposedly to surrender and then detonates himself and kills uh, uh, our people. So this is a, a, a natural precaution, a, a logical precaution, and now we're, we're making sure there's a new, a new uh, thing to make sure that there'll be for, for Palestinian Hamas prisoners, that there'll be uh, clothing available for them once they have been checked. But the initial stage where they'll have to take off their shirts, we don't want suicide vests being exploded with our, with our people around. As we saw, more than their shirts had to be taken off. Several of the men were identified as civilians, including um, a journalist. Um, what would you say to them? Many of them have now been released, of course, without any charge. Exactly, Kay. When, when people have been rounded up in areas of combat, uh, men of, uh, of military age, and after an investigation, if they are shown to be not involved in Hamas, they are released. We, we don't see the, the civilian population of Gaza as a target of our operation. We're, we're, we're out there to get Hamas. And uh, uh, I think uh, so far the numbers, the majority of people we have arrested have been uh, associated with Hamas, and therefore we want to interrogate them. We can get vital information, also information about where our hostages are from these people. But of course, if you're not involved, people are released. And as you've reported, they've been released quickly. This is a really strange story, this. So it seems to me the sequence of events was that Israel and the IDF were concerned that they were taking lots of flack internationally because of the fact that they were just killing loads and loads of women and children um, and not really any Hamas fighters. And so to push back against this, and I suppose maybe to try and demotivate Palestinians as well, they sort of said, okay, well, let's release lots of pictures of men, um, and then it will seem as if we are we are rounding up Hamas and that this is a military success. They, they sort of showed that to the world, and then the world was like, why have you got all of these men stripped naked sort of sitting on the floor, and why are you filming them? And then they say, yes, okay, we needed to check they didn't have suicide vests. Why are you filming them and then releasing that to the world? Why are you lining them up in front of this hole you seem to have dug in the desert, right? The rest of the world was a bit like, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. And then the Israelis are sort of like, oh, God, okay, so we, maybe, we, maybe it does also matter how we treat the men. I feel like, David, that Israel had sort of thought, oh, well, everyone's complaining about women and kids. That means men are fair game. Let's release lots of images of us being cruel to men. And then people will, will say, oh, actually, maybe, yeah, this military campaign is a success and they're doing the right thing. And it's, it's backfired. I don't know. Is that, uh, do you have the same interpretation of what we've seen over the past few days, this sort of sequence of events? You know, there's one piece that you missed in the coverage of those kids who were talking about their detention, which is that the Israeli government um, put numbers on them in order to uh, label them as Palestinian prisoners, a tactic that we've seen earlier uh, in the wake of the October 7th attacks when they were putting, like, cattle um, uh, kind of cable ties around the arms, so the, the wrists and the ankles of Palestinian prisoners of war that were taken, many of them simply just Gazan laborers. And, you know, last time I was on the show, Michael, I spoke kind of a bit about my own background and my own kind of personal relationship with this stuff. And, you know, a lot of this footage just leaves me heartbroken and speechless to see the exact same acts of dehumanization, of oppression, of violence 
uh, be committed uh, by people who dare to speak in the name and the legacy of those crimes that were committed to. You know, I think um, I get really concerned. So I don't want to sound like a broken record. I get really concerned with, uh, you know, we, we watch the clip from Sky, the kind of self-congratulations of a, of a journalist who, who really puts Mark Regev to task, who really asks these hard questions. Because I just don't know, what, what more do we have to see? What more do we have to know? We're so far behind on any mechanism of accountability, let alone justice for the people of Palestine in the present unfolding Gaza genocide. I, I just don't, uh, sometimes I, I wake up so dispirited in looking, of course, it's easy to be dispirited here in Washington, D.C., the kind of epicenter of this particular monstrosity in many ways. But, you know, I just think that uh, we're seeing these crimes unfold day after day, and we're losing ourselves in these complex strings of lies and verifications of checking this or that photo and losing sight of the broader plot. I mean, this is a genocide. Textbook written, declared by the highest officials of the UN system, having to invoke articles that have not been seen uh, at the level of the UN in decades in order to just draw down to the most basic fundaments uh, of a peaceful settlement, which is a ceasefire. And I, I just get so concerned when we when we spend um, a whole cycle of Twitter rage and reflection on one particular lie or one particular photo, one particular atrocity, when uh, you know we're missing in that uh, obsession with a tree, a forest that is completely visible to us and has, of course, been for so many decades, but has only become in sharper focus in the course of the past two months. And you know we're approaching the holidays, we're approaching uh, it's Hanukkah now, we're approaching Christmas, the New Year's coming up soon. And again, I'm very, very scared. I'm scared that people will stop paying attention. I'm scared that people will maybe switch on their phones to check on the latest controversy, the latest lie that's being exposed, the latest photo that's been published, and not apply the same pressure that needs to be applied at two months ago uh, to avert what could be not just two, but as you said in this program many times, a year more of this systematic humiliation, dispossession, and outright killing of Palestinian citizens. And so uh, this is a kind of critical uh, kind of inflection point, I think we're at two months in approaching these holidays where we either... Uh, change the rules of our uh, reflection, change the rules, uh, uh, adapt our capacity to hold our attention and to hold the pain of our Palestinian sisters and brothers, to hold, to, to push our politicians to not just make rhetorical declarations that might nudge in this way or that, but actually make substantial moves to dismantle uh, that, you know, or to sever those arteries of complicity, as I've, as I've emphasized so many times before. And I just think about this poor kid with, you know, a number written on his arm, uh, held for no crime at all in, in, in Israeli prison. And the idea that Mark Gregg is saying, you know, we're letting them out of prison. Come on, we're not, we're not targeting civilians. Rounding up innocent people, humiliating them, beating them, stripping them of their basic dignity and humanity just to release them later on and saying that's totally fine, let alone the deaths, as you mentioned, Michael, of women and children. I mean, this is all, it's not adding up to a story that's any different than the one that we've been telling for the past two months. This is a genocide. And in order to avert, you know, an even more sustained process of ethnic cleansing and dispossession, we have to act, act, act now and, and, and not wake up and read with a kind of twisted delight the latest headline that may occupy us for, for six, seven hours on Twitter. A good note to end on, if somewhat depressing. Thank you, David, for joining me tonight. Thanks, Michael. Sorry for the depressing output. No, no, it was, it was definitely warranted in that context. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.